And verse 38 picks up with Jesus speaking. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen uh, with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus uh, said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin. If I tell the truth, uh, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, your word uh, opens to us secrets uh, about the world that we live in, uh, secrets about you and secrets about ourselves, um, but also uh, secrets about the unseen uh, reality behind the world we live in and uh, things we cannot know based on our own wisdom, but things we know because your word tells us. And so we pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would come and teach us as we study Jesus' words and that his words would lead us uh, to the truth, lead us to the gospel, lead us to your grace, lead us to your promises. And uh, so give us hearts to receive these words with faith and obedience. And we ask this in uh, the name of our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are uh, talking about the topic of the devil, Satan. And uh, you see in this passage that uh, I just read to you, Jesus clearly believed in a devil. Uh, he says there in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And if you're Visiting today, uh, if, you know, especially if you're not a Christian, you might say, wow, this is a group of modern people who seriously are talking about the old man in the red tights with the pitchfork. And you're like, you really believe that there's a devil. And, uh, well, of course, we don't believe that Satan wears red tights and, and has a, a pitchfork. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, it's interesting that modern people have come up with the idea Something like this, that, you know, we live in a, a scientific age. And because we live in a scientific age, we now know that there aren't evil spirits floating around everywhere. 
And, you know, it's kind of a puzzling statement to say something like that. How could science ever say anything about whether there are evil spirits or not? Science is the study of the physical world. Nature is, by definition, not a study of the supernatural or the spiritual world. So science, by definition, has absolutely nothing to say about whether there is a spiritual world or not. But you can imagine if there is a devil, a deceiver, him saying, you know, tempting a biologist to think, you know, well, I have a PhD in biology. I'm an expert in biology, so I'm also an expert in evil spirits. And you say, what's the connection? Why is being an expert in biology make you an expert in, you know, you know, it would be like someone who's saying, well, I have a PhD in English literature, so I'm also an expert at, you know, designing an airplane. Because I'm an expert in one area, I should be an expert in another area. I think the deeper question is, why are we so resistant to the idea of evil spiritual forces in our world? Why are we resistant to that? And I think it's because uh, being a modern person, we are ultimately about controlling nature. That's what science is, that's what medicine is, that's what technology is, that's what psychology is. It's, we are, that's what they've all promised us, us, is we will give you control of this wildly out of control world that you live in. Um, but if there are spiritual forces that we can't see, we can't measure, we can't study, we can't master, we can't even comprehend these spiritual forces, let alone control them, then maybe we don't have uh, the control that we think that we have. And so that's why we refuse to admit that such beings exist. Well, uh, the Bible is unapologetic that there is a massive unseen reality uh, in God's creation. There is a whole unseen world that has some kind of interplay with our world. And a significant part of that unseen reality are intelligent, powerful beings who hate the purposes of God in the world and are bent on destroying God's people. And these beings have a leader. His name is Satan. His name is the devil. And so today, we're going to talk about that leader, Satan, the devil. We're going to do what Rage Against the Machine tells us to do. Know your enemy. We're going to know our enemy. And so uh, to do that, we're going to answer uh, three uh, simple questions from this text. Who is the devil? What does he do? What does the devil do? And how can we be delivered from him? Three simple questions. Who is the devil? What does he do? How does he act? And how can we be delivered from him? And of course, you know, we can't say everything in one sermon, but I think there's some important insights from this passage from John chapter 8. So three points uh, this morning. The first is this. Who is the devil? And there are two answers that I want to point out from this passage this morning. First... The devil is the source of evil in the world. The devil is the source of evil in the world. And you see there in verse 44 where Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now when Jesus says that word from the beginning, where does that immediately transport us? Brings us to the opening pages of the Bible, you know, where God made this good, beautiful, green world. And he made our first parents and he placed them in this garden. He said, I want you to eat of all the fruit that are in the garden. There's one tree that you cannot eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that garden there appeared, it seems almost out of nowhere, the serpent. And he deceived Eve. 
and Adam and Eve together, they rebelled against God, and then they died. And death and suffering and misery was introduced into God's good, green, beautiful world. Now, if you've, uh, uh, and that's why Jesus says that he was a murderer from the beginning. He's in the beginning of the story. He's been a murderer ever since then. Now, if you've read that story, probably one of the first questions you had is, where did the serpent come from? It's the chapter right before, God said he made a good world, and everything in it was good, and then all of a sudden, there's an evil serpent. Where did the evil serpent come from? Well, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us, but your reaction that this serpent is alien to this world, uh, this is not the way things are supposed to be. It doesn't fit with everything else. And the only answer we get is that the devil is the origin of evil in God's good world. Now, this idea that there's an alien evil in the world that was from the beginning is, uh, is important in our day because, you know, we've lost a sense of this spiritual reality that's around us. And so we've lost the language to talk about evil, to even name evil. Uh, there's a book by Andrew Del Banco. It's called uh, The Death of Satan, How America how Americans have lost the sense of evil. And in this book, he talks about, you know, the secularization of our culture. And in the introduction, you know, he talks about um, how, how does a secular culture that doesn't recognize a spiritual reality deal with, you know, someone like, like Hitler? Um, if there is no diabolical power at work in the world, what was Hitler? And the only language that we have to talk about Hitler is to say he had a psychological disorder. You know, he grew up in a family that he wasn't loved. And then, you know, and then he turned into Hitler. And there's something deep inside of us that says, no, that's not, he doesn't just have a psychological disorder. Hitler was evil. There was a, an evil at work in him. There was an intelligent, strategic, ordered, purposeful mind systematically at work in Hitler. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, just last night, I, uh, Shannon and I saw a, a, a film about the uh, abortion industry, the Lindsay family. It's called Unplanned. It's about a, a woman named Abby Johnson who was a, a director of um, a, an abortion clinic and who, after I think it was like eight years leading this clinic, left. And she now works like helping people, you know, work in the abortion industry to get, to get out. And, uh, I, you know, this movie is basically a horror film. I mean, it's, I, I haven't seen a movie where I had to turn away my eyes as much as in this movie. And what you felt is that there is a secretive, purposeful, strategic, organized evil at work in the world. And it's a massive industry that preys on women, women who are poor, women who are young, women who are vulnerable. And what the Bible tells us is that behind that work is a mind the mind of the devil. And the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He is the source of evil in the world. Now you might hear that and, and get the impression that, oh, there's this, wow, oh, there is an evil. There's a darkness at work. So we're living, you might feel we're living in this cosmic battle between good and evil and they're kind of like equal opposites, like Jesus and Satan are like yin and yang that kind of balance each other out. Um, but the Bible never sees Satan that way. Satan is, oh, is, is at best a fallen angel. He's a part of God's creation. He is not God. 
And, and so when we realize that, we, there's a second thing we learn in this passage about the devil. So when we first ask, who is the devil? He's first, he is the source of evil in the world. The second is, second answer is, the devil is an ape of God. The devil is an ape of God. And I, I get that language from Augustine. That's what Augustine called uh, the devil because he, he says the devil tries to be like God. He mimics God. He wants to be God. And, uh, and so he, but he's really only an ape. And you see how Jesus contrasts the God and the devil, that he kind of compares them with the language of father. They're both fathers that throughout this passage, uh, you see verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus says, I've, I have a father and I listen to him. You have a father and you listen to him. And there's an irony in Jesus' words comparing devil, the devil to the father because um, that's actually what the, Satan wants. He wants to be God. He wants control. He wants authority. He wants glory for himself. And he hates that God has control and authority and glory. But Satan can do nothing of his own. And if, you, if you've ever read the book of Job, the book of Job begins with Satan like in God's courts, and he wants to go tempt and, and, you know, persecute Job, but he has to get permission from God. God is the sovereign Lord who has control over his whole creation. Um, and so what that tells us is it's not like there's good and evil that, we're, that are equal opposites. It means that there's good and evil in the world, but there is a good God who is the judge of all, and he tells us that these things are good and these things are evil. So, you know, good is the deeper magic in the universe, and evil is a lesser magic. So we should recognize the brilliance of Satan, but also that he is nothing more than a wannabe of our father. And, you know, another book that I read a, a couple years ago, it's called uh, the secular, uh, A Secular Age by Charles Taylor, which it's like about a 900-page like academic book. It's like published by Harvard, you know, a branch of Harvard Press, and it, you know it tells a story about how you know how did our culture from you know if you lived in in the, like Western Europe 500 years ago, your default was I believed the Bible, I believed in a, like a spiritual world with demons and angels, and I believed that there was a God. And now you could believe those things, but you really have to work at it. You got to like come to church every week. We got to really think about it. And it's not the natural thing to believe in our culture. Like how did our culture shift so much? And what struck me about this 900-page story of modernization and secularization is that every step of the movement was inspired by the theology of the Bible. And then the theology of the Bible was twisted to become godless. Let me give you just a couple examples. So, uh, for example, you know, in the pre-modern world, you know, many people in the pre-modern world really believed that there were all kinds of spirits that were around us all the time. And they said, they thought that our, our selves and our bodies were like these porous beings. And you know, evil spirits could just all of a sudden kind of give us a disease or like, you know, curse us. And so they had all these kind of magical techniques to ward off all the evil spirits. And uh, John Calvin, you know, during the Reformation, he said, you know, we are not living in a wildly out of control world. The whole world is governed by God's providence. He is the king over all. And so your life is not wildly out of control because your father is in control of everything. Of course, there are evil spirits. There are evil things that happen, but nothing goes against his purposes. And he orders all of nature according to these laws of nature, and he rules his creation in a very orderly manner. 
And so that means we can have an orderly society. That means that we can study, you know, the laws of nature and learn about science. And so we took this picture of an orderly universe, and what did we do? We said, well, we'll take the laws of nature, but we'll get rid of God. Who needs God to have an orderly universe? We'll just have science. And it gave us a secularized, godless consciousness about our universe. I'll give you another example. In the, in the 18th century, the evangelical movement, uh, evangelicals uh, had all these revivals where people would go out to these tents and there would be preachers. And the preachers would tell people, do not think that you're a Christian just because you go to church and you got baptized when you were a baby. You need to have a personal faith in your heart. You need to know Jesus personally. And what matters more, more than your church membership is what's in your heart. That's what God cares about. Now, it was really, that was a profound that really taught us that my individual faith really matters to God. What did our culture do with that? What's in your heart is the only thing that matters. And now we say no one, not my church, not my family, not my culture, not even God himself is going to tell my heart what to believe. I'm going to follow my heart no matter what it tells me. So we took an, ins- took an insight from God and turned it into a, you know, godless, secularized society. Each of these were massive cultural shifts. Each were inspired by Christian theology. And each was used as a step toward a godless society. And what is amazing to me is the devil didn't come up with any of those. He had to use God's ideas and then twist them. He's always borrowing God's ideas. And what we see is this has been a centuries-long, civilization-wide, strategic campaign to remove the knowledge of God from our consciousness. That's what we've experienced in the last 500 years. And it shows you the brilliance of Satan, but it also shows you that he can't come up with anything on his own. He's a desperate God wannabe. Now, that could potentially freak you out because you say, whoa, Satan steers whole civilizations has centuries-long campaigns like, what hope does little old Nate have against an enemy like that? Or little old you have against an enemy like that? Well, I think the answer to that is that, you know, civilizations come and go. God doesn't really care that much about civilizations. Civilizations are all often about the glory of man and our great things that we built to bring glory to ourselves. And God always lets civilizations crash to the ground. But individual human beings will exist forever. Each one of you is infinitely more valuable than any civilization. And God cares about his children. He's going to protect his children far more than he's going to protect a civilization. And even the movements of Satan among the civilizations he will always use for his purposes in history because he is the sovereign Lord. So the devil is brilliant, but he's only an ape compared to our Father, our God. So first, who is the devil? He is an intelligent and purposeful being who is the source of evil in the world, and yet he is not God's opposite. He is an ape of God who wants to be God and therefore at best can only mimic the one true God. And so this leads to our second question. What does the devil do? What does the devil do? How does the devil act? And there are three things we see in this passage that he kills, he accuses, and he lies. He kills, he accuses, and he lies. And so we're going to talk about each of those. First, he kills. The devil is a killer. He is a murderer. He is a destroyer. 
And twice Jesus says in this passage to this group of men that are seeking to kill him, that these group of men are seeking to kill him. You see in verse 37 how it says, I know that you are, uh, that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And then again in uh, verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Now, what this tells us is that you and I, we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And uh, in particular, he wanted to just destroy Jesus, and he wants to destroy anyone who loves Jesus. He wants to destroy the community that loves Jesus. And, uh, and I think that's important for us to recognize as a church, that he wants to destroy the fellowship we have. He wants to destroy the family we have. That's one of the chief places that Satan attacks, is in these relationships in this room. And, um, and, and so it's important for all of us to recognize that we have a common enemy. You know, there are people that are going to hurt you in this church. They're going to say things that offend you. That, and, and it's important to realize that person is your brother or sister. They are not your enemy. There is another enemy who is trying to drive a wedge between you and your brother or sister. And our job is not to fight them, or, you know, your brother or sister. Our job is to fight the evil one in his ways. I think this is an important insight in a marriage. I mean, oftentimes when a marriage is caught in deadlock, you begin to think that your spouse is your enemy. You know, Shannon and I, early in our marriage, we would, we've done that throughout our marriage. We get in these fights and we're really mad at each other. And we would say to one another, you are not my enemy. And sometimes we laugh once we say it, like, you're not my enemy. Okay, yeah, you're not my enemy. All right, who is our enemy? There is an evil one who wants to destroy this marriage and we got to get on the same team to fight against him. You know, it's commonly been said that there's nothing that unifies people quite like a common enemy, right? When was the America ever more unified than in World War II? It's not a good reason to go to war to unify a, na a nation, but a common enemy will do that. And we have a common, common enemy who's seeking to destroy uh, both of us in our marriage. And so we need to stop taking shots at each other and start fighting him. And this is related to a second thing that the devil, devil does. Not only that he kills, not only that he wants to tear apart and destroy communities and individuals and people, but second, the way that he does that is he accuses. You know, the, the name Satan literally means the accuser. He is an expert in the art of knowing the words that will particularly crush you with guilt and shame. He knows the words that sting the most. And uh, you see that in these uh, men who are arguing with Jesus. So you see in verse 39, it says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. So these, these, they took pride in their kind of pedigree in the family that they, they, uh, they come from and their, you know, their uh, heritage. And it goes on in verse 39, say, Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children... You would be doing the works, of, uh, the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So Jesus is basically saying, your family name means nothing if you're an evil person. And this provokes them. And this is how they respond when they're provoked by Jesus' words. Verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, 
even God. And you might wonder, why do they bring up sexual immorality? Why does this fit in this, this conversation? Well, commentators say that maybe what they are talking about is that they knew about Jesus' birth, that Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, got pregnant when she was not married yet. And so news has gotten out about his birth, that, and they say, oh, you were born out of sexual immorality. And so when they're losing the argument with Jesus, they smear him with this accusation, well, at least we're not a bastard child like you are. And this is, this is exactly what the accusations of the devil sound like. This is what his voice sounds like. Your family is a bunch of losers. You are do- dirty. You're stupid. You're worthless. You're good for nothing. Why would anyone like you? You see, it's not an accusation about anything that Jesus did, right? Actually, Jesus even says in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? It's not about anything Jesus did. It is a statement about who Jesus is. And this is precisely the difference between the accusations of the devil and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because some of you probably wondered that. Like, you know, when you have guilty feelings about something, like, how do I know if this is the devil accusing me or this is the Holy Spirit convicting me of my sin? Which is it? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts you of very concrete, particular sins. You know, when you cut someone down with your words and you're like, you know what, I was really trying to hurt that person when I said that. I need to go apologize and repent and make amends and ask for forgiveness and ask God for forgiveness for that. That's the Holy Spirit. When it's a vague kind of accusation about who you are, not tied to any particular thing you did, your life is a waste. Like, which sin is that talking about? Your life is a waste. Like, you know, or, you know, you're kind of good for nothing. Or, you know, God doesn't love you. Like, there's no particular sin that that's tied to. Those are the accusations of the evil one. And uh, that's one of the worst things that the devil does, because remember, he pretends to be God. And so when he is getting on us and he's pounding us with accusations, he's going to make us think it is God who thinks that way of us. He's going to say, God thinks you're good for nothing. God thinks you are a waste. God thinks you are dirty and shameful. God thinks you are unlovable. And of course, the accusation in this passage is not true. Was, was, even was Jesus born... <laughs> Out of immoral, sexual immorality? No. Mary was, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit. This was a lie. And that's the third thing that is maybe the most quintessential thing the devil does, is that he kills, he destroys, he tears apart, he accuses, and he lies. And you see Jesus' words there in verse 44, how he describes the devil. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the father of lies. Now you might wonder, okay, how does Satan lie to me? Like, can he, like, get in my head and, like, make me think things and make me believe things? And, you know, how does that work? Well, um, I want to read to you. This is Herman Bavink was a, a great Dutch theologian from about 100 years ago. This is what Bavink says about it. Just as human beings, by their words and deeds, their example and conduct, exert influence on others, 
So there is nothing absurd in the idea that the fallen world of spirits exerts a deceptive influence on the imagination, intellect, and will of humans. And so what he says is just like there are people in your life that, you know, you have a conversation with them and you're like, man, they were just accusing me and they were just like taking my words and twisting them. And I came out of that conversation, I feel like beat down and my mind is all twisted and I don't even know what to believe or to think about, you know, anything. It's not that that person is like God and has total control of your life, but they did have influence on you. And Bobbing says evil spirits are trying to do that to us as well. And when you have a conversation with someone like that who's manipulating you and lying to you and accusing you, what's the best thing to do after that? You go find someone who loves you. And you say, I just had this conversation. My mind is all twisted up. Like, remind me of the gospel. Tell me I'm loved. Remind me who I am. You need, you need to come to church and hear, you know, the preaching. you got to come to the table. you got to sing God's praises. And, and so, that, and so um, this... We shouldn't be freaked out that we have enemies that are at work against us. Um, and I think it's the same with the devil. Or, you know, and by the way, none of us has probably been tempted by the devil himself. Like, you know, he's not everywhere all the time. He's got, you know, workers for him that, you know, come after. I don't think any of us are important enough to get, like, the leader who's targeting us. But it's the same way with his mission. And so be among people who love you. Be among God's people. And, uh, and so what we see in all this is the devil should be taken seriously by Christians. He is the intelligent source behind all evil in the world, but he is only an ape of God who wants to kill through accusing people with lies. And so 1 Peter 5 says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him firm in your faith. So the devil's real. But in every case, we see how vastly superior our God is to our enemy. And so that leads to our final question. How can we be delivered from him? How can we be delivered from the devil? And it would make sense if the devil's you know, greatest weapon is lies. What's the thing that will deliver us from him? The truth. Jesus said last week, the truth will set you free. And you see in this passage, verse 45, Jesus says, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe in me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus says that the devil hates his word. And hates his truth. And the best thing for us is for that tr- to live in that truth and for that truth to live in us. And I just think, you know, what an incredible answer. That that's all we need is the truth. Like, wow, there's this huge supernatural force. And he has a whole army of evil spirits that we can't even see. And we don't even know what they're doing. It's like, oh, well, how are we going to protect ourselves? Just the truth. We'll do it. I mean, it's so simple. Uh, the truth about God. The truth about ourselves. The truth about God's love for us. The truth about Christ. You know, if we're in the church and we're being torn apart by accusations and people are accusing one another, what do we need for protection? We need the truth of the gospel. The gospel of repentance and peace and forgiveness that binds us back together. The truth will protect us from him. And you know, one of the greatest hymns about fighting the devil 
comes from Martin Luther. And if you ever read Martin Luther, Martin Luther is always like rebuking the devil and fighting the devil and making fun of the devil. And he's just like so much of his, his writings against these, these evil spirits. And this is what he writes in the great uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And you just, I want you to hear the worldview that Martin Luther had. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. He says we are bombarded by a flood of mortal ills, spiritual battle. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled, and just listen to that worldview. I mean, he knows there's a spiritual world all around us. So though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And this is, what, this is my favorite line of the whole hymn. One little word shall fell him. What do we need to defeat our enemy? It's one little word. It's the word of the gospel. It's the word of truth that he has nothing against. And though Satan may intimidate us that he is ancient and from the beginning the very source of evil, and though he constantly, he's constantly mimicking God, he can steer civilizations, though he kills, accuses, and lies, Jesus in the gospel has taken the devil's killing on the cross. Jesus has taken the devil's accusations and lies on the cross for us. He has absorbed all the devil's powers. And he has risen victorious and he stripped the devil of all his powers. That is the word of hope. That is the word of truth. That is the little word, word that the devil has no answer for. The devil may be crafty, but our God is craftier still. So have no fear. Your God is a refuge. Your God is a mighty fortress. Hide yourself in him, and he will see you to the day when the devil is no more. Let's pray together.